What must I do to be saved? That question has echoed down through history. In this sermon, recorded live in Ballincashen Church, we take a look at Acts chapter 16 and once again consider the importance of those very famous words. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16 and verse 25. I suppose if you have any knowledge of Acts at all, you'll know that this is one of the passages that is best known. And perhaps we'll even be able to quote it from time to time. The words, what must I do to be saved, must have been quoted in thousands and thousands of evangelistic sermons advertised at the back of buses, sung in songs, the prison officer's question, written in the minds of thousands of people. And I have no doubt that that very question, what must I do to be saved, has been instrumental in awakening people to their need of salvation. So we have a responsibility to read the passage in some context with their correct understanding of the work of God in salvation and the correct response of men and women to the work of God. Got three simple P's, praise, panic, and prayer. Praise in the midst of a great reversal. Panic in the prison officer's realization and prayer after he is reprieved from a sure and certain punishment. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now let's remind ourselves for a moment of the condition of these two men. They're in prison. 
And from a purely human standpoint, things are going bad, physically speaking, for Paul and Silas. From a natural viewpoint, they have suffered a serious reversal in their evangelistic efforts in the town of Philippi. If you look back to verse 22, uh, we find out what happened. It tells us there that the multitude rose up together against them. The magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. I think what they have just suffered. They have been publicly humiliated. They have been stripped naked in front of a howling crowd, a procedure designed to reduce them to a laughing stock, to make them embarrassed. These are the great preachers. These are the men who have been instrumental in the salvation of Lydia and her house and the establishment of a church. These are the men who have come in the name of the Lord to a woman who was demented and restored her to health. And now they're standing utterly humiliated. And they've been subjected to physical abuse. They've been beaten with rods. The magistrates mentioned here were known by the Romans as lictors, rod bearers. They carried rods as a sign of office. And they weren't just ceremonial rods. The rods that they carried when they beat you with them, the physical abuse that you would have received from them was absolutely horrendous. It left your back ripped to shreds, a, a seething mass of skin and blood and gore, the flesh torn from the bones. They have been humiliated. They have been subject to physical abuse. They have been placed in prison. And if you look at verse 24, you'll see that they have been not only put into the prison, but their feet have been fastened in stocks. Now, why would they have done that if they were already in the prison? If they were already in the most secure cell in the prison? Well, it's obvious. When your feet's in the stocks, you can't turn. You're lying on your back. And your back's been ripped to shreds. And you can't turn or get comfortable. And every time you try to turn, you can't lie on your side. You've got to lie on your back. And when you lie on your back, the pain from your, from your already torn back in such an unnatural position, there is no relief from the searing pain of the beating that they've had. They couldn't stretch. They couldn't move. They couldn't ease their muscles. Their feet are held in the one position. Now this is total agony. Actually this is enough for some people to die from the pain. They should be sitting there, or lying there complaining about the unfairness of it all. They should be demanding their rights. They've been denied a fair trial. They should be swearing at the prison guards. They should be crying and wailing because of the pain. And yet verse 25, our passage begins, that at midnight in the very depths of the night, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening to them in the midst of those awful circumstances of life. Paul and Silas prayed 
sang praises to the Lord. Do you know, it would be easy for us to say, whatever your circumstances, pray and praise God, wouldn't it? It's not so easy when you're actually in circumstances that are adverse. But believe me, there's nothing that we are going through at the minute that even comes remotely near to the humiliation and the beating and the pain that Paul and Silas were suffering that day. Like the psalmist in Psalm 34, they could truly say, I will at all times bless the Lord and praise my mouth employ. My soul will in the Lord make boast the meek will hear with joy. Not only was there praise, but there was panic. I wonder if you ever suffered a panic attack. Uh, they range from a mild shock to a traumatic, life-shattering event that can precipitate an extreme physical and mental reaction. Becoming aware of something terrible, learning that you have an illness or an immediate danger. I wonder what the state of mind of the jailer was when he discovered that all the prisoners under his care were free to walk away. That would induce a panic attack. Because under normal circumstances, that event would not only be life-changing, it would be life-ending. Let's see how the situation developed here. There was divine intervention in verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. My goodness, your personal circumstances can change very quickly, can't they? Let's think about this. I've called it a divine intervention. I think that there was an act of deliverance here. But I don't think that the act of deliverance was the earthquake. I think the act of deliverance was the timing of the earthquake. Because, you see, earthquakes were pretty common in Philippi. Earthquakes are a natural event. Earthquakes are the result of plates in the earth's crust simply shifting. They happen all the time. Philippi is particularly susceptible to earthquakes. And the fact that the doors of the prison were open is no miracle either. The doors, you know, in those days, they didn't have yell locks or security locks such as they have nowadays. The doors were simply secured by the fact that the door was closed and a wooden plank was placed across two clasps on either side and that locked the door. Now you take a mighty earthquake happening at the very time when that door was fastened by that wooden plank and you can see that it would simply work itself loose. The movement of the walls in a huge earthquake would have dislodged the locking mechanism. Same with the stocks. The movement of the walls. No, the miracle was the fact that everything works according to God's perfect timing. Paul learned that. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, he was able to say, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called, according to his purpose. Now, why am I so sure about this? You see, back in Acts chapter 12, God intervened miraculously. He sent an angel to free Peter. 
He could have done that with Paul and Silas. Of course he could. He could have sent an angel to come in and to open the door of the prison and to escort Paul and Silas out of the out of the prison and walked them free, just like he did in Acts chapter 12, when Peter alone was led out of prison by an angel. That day, nobody else but Peter was freed. But here at Philippi, all the prisoners are free. It's a miracle. A miracle of God's perfect timing. An earthquake happening at exactly the right place and time. It's no coincidence that Paul and Silas were praying and praising when this earthquake happened, because God's timing is always perfect. So there's divine intervention, and then there's serious consequences in verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. That's a serious situation for that jailer. A public servant would pay heavily for such a failure in office. Imagine losing a jail full of prisoners. That would be a capital offence. The method of dispatch would not be pleasant. It would be much less painful to fall on your sword and to try to explain to these lictors that you'd failed in your duty. There was a sudden sense of dread that overcame the man. But then Paul cried with a loud voice in verse 28, Do not harm yourself. Do thyself no harm. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, verse 29. He ran in and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Why did the prisoners not take the opportunity to escape? Why did Paul and Silas not walk away? Paul, you see, was no quitter. Paul didn't want to simply walk away from there. He would defy his enemies on other occasions by, for example, in Acts chapter 14, walking straight back into the city where he's just been beaten and left for dead, but not on this occasion. And we'll see that next week. Lastly, prayer. We've had prayers. We've had a state of panic. Prayer. Prayer after the jailer has discovered that he's going to live, that he's reprieved, that the prisoners are all in the jail. And we've come to the most important part of this story. For a soul is about to pass from death unto life in more ways than one. The most important question is in verse 30. What must I do to be saved? For it's a question that has been asked right throughout history. I wonder what the jailer was thinking when he asked that question. Was he thinking he must do something in order to be saved? Was he thinking that he must join a church to be saved? Or like back in Acts chapter 15, that he must become a Jew in order to be saved? that he must be circumcised, that he must keep the law. Some people today think that in order to be saved, they have to be charitable and be a good person and give money to some worthy cause. It's a question we would hear today from people who think they can be saved by something they do. Do I have to do something 
in order to be a Christian. And in fact, we know that there's nothing you can do to be saved. For Christ has done everything that is necessary. Paul's answer reflects that. Verse 31, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's all done. Won't you believe that? Won't you accept it? Believing is not a work. Believing is a simple acceptance of what Christ has already accomplished for you on the cross. Resting and trusting in his finished work. Still they need to hear the word of God. Verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. Paul is adamant that salvation comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They preached to him and to all who were in his house. This man, just think about it, he's seen the power of God at work. He's been spared from personal tragedy by the honesty and the integrity of the apostles. But he still needs to hear the word of the Lord. But is he genuinely saved? And the reason I'm asking that question is simply because there are some liberal commentators here who will say that he's really only wanting to spare his own life. This man's not asking a spiritual question. He's asking, how can I be rescued from Caesar and the law of Rome? But let's see how genuine his conversion is and what happens next. Verse 33, he ministered to the prisoners. He took them the same hour of the night and he washed their stripes. I'd say he'd never done that before. Up until now, he's wanted to inflict more pain. His idea was to put them in the stocks so that they couldn't twist or turn away from their sore back. Right now, that's totally changed. A changed life. He's bathing the wounds that previously he'd wanted to inflict. Then at the end of the verse, it tells us he was baptized. He witnessed a Christ-cleansing work by submitting to the sacrament of baptism. And he didn't wait. And he fellowshiped with the Christians. Verse 34, he brought them up into his own house and he set food before him. Part of his ministry to the apostles was to lift them out of the prison and to set them at his own table and feed them with his own food. And he rejoiced in his belief in God. He praised God with his entire household that he believed in God. Well, I think that's conclusive, don't you? This man has a totally changed life. He's a different character. These are hardly the actions of a man obsessed with his own future career prospects or a man trying to preserve his own life. These are the results of a life that have been radically changed by the grace of God. So what about you and me? What can we learn from this? I think one of the most important challenges for Christians in this passage is Paul's answer to the jailer's question. A man who has flung himself to the floor in desperation and in the face of death asks, what must I do to be saved, needs a very urgent answer indeed, doesn't he? He's about to thrust himself through with his sword. The best illustration for us today is if we came across a road accident, and there's a man or a woman lying on the ground, and they know that they are dying, 
They know that they have minutes to live. And he grasps out to you or me as a bystander. And he says, I'm dying. Tell me what I have to do to get to heaven. You've got three minutes. What are you going to tell him? He can't go to church. He can't take communion. He can't do good works. He's fatally injured. His blood is spilling on the ground. His life is ebbing away. What are you going to say to somebody lying, dying on the ground? Here's what you're going to say. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I shall be saved. It's all we need to know for salvation. To know the life-changing forgiveness that is God's free gift in Christ. The one who asks that question and who genuinely means it is asking it because God's Holy Spirit has placed that question in his or her heart. And they're reaching out to a believer. What must I do to be saved? Sinner, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and I shall be saved. So, another sinner in Philippi has been saved. And the new church there has been extended. Just think about it. Another family of believers, a whole family, have come into fellowship. What do we have first? We have Lydia, a woman of great possessions. A woman who has money and a business and a big house and servants. The top of society has become a Christian. And then we have a demented slave girl who has become a Christian. And now we've got a middle class civil servant who's become a Christian. And they've all come together into the church of Jesus Christ. A well-bred businesswoman and her family. A penniless slave girl. A civil servant. In Christ's kingdom, there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, rich or poor. For we are all one in Christ Jesus.